beautiful song by um, uh, the Down Under Sons of Korah. Yeah, <coughs> children are dismissed and see them happily fleeing. <laughs> you will too by the time this is over. <laughs> Romans chapter five. There was a time when it seemed that Satan had won a decided victory. In all the world, there was no one who was without sin. Even the priests and the scribes and the prophets were rotten underneath their, their robes and masks of righteousness. Men were without hope. Satan ruled all the kingdoms of the earth. And then something unexpected happened. Something that would have never occurred to Satan. Something that would have never entered into the heart of man. In that darkness, God broke through with light and nailed his son to the cross. To die, not for his friends, not for those who loved him, to die for his enemies. And that's what Romans 5, 6 through 11 is all about. It's the passage that we have before us today. Before we read it, I'll just briefly summarize the, the points of this. First of all, the idea that human love at its best might lead a person to die for another truly good person. But Christ died good, not for the righteous people, but for rebellious enemies. And therefore, God's love is far greater than man's love in both magnitude and dependability. Let's read Romans 5, verse 6 through 11. For when we were still without strength... In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. First of all, in this passage, we, we want to identify the enemy. We find out that it is, it's ourselves. 
there are several important descriptions of man's condition without Christ in this passage. First of all, he is said to be without strength in verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. We were without strength spiritually there was no way that we could help ourselves. It's not a matter of just being weak, but being totally without any ability on our own, any strength on our own to help ourselves. Like, like a man drowning in the, the midst of the ocean who doesn't know how to swim and has no strength left, he has no hope. He can't save himself. The situation is helpless and Hopeless. When we were without strength, helpless on our own. Secondly, we are described as still sinners in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... Paul gives a realistic assessment of man without Christ here. He doesn't try to whitewash it or tone it down or soften it or spin it. He says it like it is. We were still sinners. And not only that, as verse 6 ends, Christ died for the ungodly. We were ungodly sinners. Now, may not look at yourself that way, but there's a, an old story of a, a, a wicked and an ugly witch who cast a spell on a mirror that caused the mirror to make her reflection look beautiful. But her spell did not take full effect. And if she looked at the mirror too long, the, the reflection changed and showed how she really was, how she really looked. And so the result was that she could only glance at the mirror or be horrified at what she saw. Well, that's similar to, to us. If we only, take, uh, only glance at ourselves and not look deeply at who we are, or if we don't allow the mirror of God's word to reflect to us, who we are in God's eyes, we might think that we're okay. And we were not better or worse than other people. We're just, we're okay. But, but God says here that without Christ, we are ugly. We are ungodly sinners. He says when we were still uh, sinners, in verse 8, while we are still sinners or yet sinners... Several things I need to explain about that. First of all, this is talking about a lifestyle or direction. When the direction of our life was bent towards sin, uh, it doesn't mean that once you come to Christ, you never sin anymore. It doesn't mean when we were still sinners back then and now we're not sinners now in a comparison that way. But it's talking about the direction of our life. When when we were sinners by life and choice. That, and that has changed now. If you become 
a believer, not that you never sin, but the direction of your life is toward godliness. The direction of your life is towards Christ-likeness. But I think uh, probably the core of what Paul is getting at here is while we were still sinners, the idea that God did not wait for man to change. I don't know how many times I've heard someone say, I'm going to get serious about religion one of these days, and when I, when I give up this and do that, uh, then I'll come to God. I got to get my act together first because God wouldn't want me this way. That's not how God operates. You, you will never reach a point of, of uh, working on self that you would make yourself acceptable to God. God doesn't wait for us to change because that's impossible on our own. It also means that um, God does not base our salvation on our own merit. It's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. There are actually two time elements in that verse, if you notice. Verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love that in that while we are still sinners. And then verse uh, 6, for while we were still without strength in due time, or at the right time, uh, perhaps taking that as, as in the nick of time, and there are several possible explanations for what Paul means in verse 6 by in, in due time. It could mean if you go back to like the illustration of someone drowning in the midst of the ocean, they're about to go under, and in the nick of time, God plucks them out. God saves them. That, that's one way of looking at it, but I, I prefer another way I think makes a little bit more sense, although they're not mutually exclusive. But look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 of Galatians chapter 4. <clears throat> and there are actually several parallels in this, this passage in Galatians with Romans 5. Galatians 4, starting at verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Especially verse 4, where it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Um, I believe that Paul is talking about the same thing back in Romans chapter 5 that when he says in due time in the fullness of time in God's timetable at just the right time he sent forth his son and there are a number of practical reasons even for why that was the, um, the ease of travel at that time with the, uh, the Romans roads having been built um, the 
expansion of uh, the Greek language as being a language of commerce that had spread throughout uh, most of the known world so that uh, the word could spread rapidly. Um, But at the right time, God sent forth his son. Since while we were without strength, it is while we were ungodly sinners, and the, the next thing that Paul says about us is, it was while we were enemies. Verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If when we were enemies, enemies of God and of the cross, not by our own definition or perhaps not even by our own intent. If, If you go out and you ask the average person who's, who has no connection with Christianity uh, just a person out there living on their own um, happily ignorant of the things of God and you ask them are you an enemy of God they'd say no, well I, I'm not an enemy of God I mean I let him alone and I hope he lets me alone but the truth is if you are not in Christ if you don't love the son you also don't love the Father, John 5 says. And you are an enemy of God. It, there's no neutral ground. There's a kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. You have to be in one or the other. We are enemies of God. Look at Philippians chapter 3. See, God, God didn't look at our life and say, hey, there's a friendly person. I think that person would be kind towards me and would love me and be nice. And No, he looked at us as rebellious sinners and enemies of his kingdom, of his rule in our life. And even though we were in that state, Christ died for us. In Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, meaning this is their pattern of life, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction. As the end of the psalm Jeremy just saying those who live without you surely die and not just a physical death but a a spiritual eternal death whose end is destruction whose God is their belly meaning they they live to serve their own appetites whatever that might be not not just meaning food but whatever their their appetites are they live to serve themselves and to fill, fill their own appetites whose God is their belly whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things 
Look at the next book, um, Colossians chapter 1, <clears throat> starting at verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in Him, meaning in Christ, all the fullness should dwell. And what Paul means by all the fullness of there is what the, the fullness of all that makes God, God. If you think of all the characteristics, attributes of God, the fullness of what God is, that is in the Son as well, meaning God the Son is the same as God the Father. So it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. <clears throat> and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him whether things on earth or things in heaven having made peace through the blood of his cross and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now he has reconciled so we were once enemies in our mind through wicked works and as Philippians 3 said enemies of the cross now back to Romans 5 verse 10 for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son even then that's how much God loves us Identifying the enemy, that's us. But dying for the enemy, that's Jesus. There is a decided focus on his death in this passage. In these few verses, his death is mentioned four times. Verse 6, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, for me. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, a reference to his death, his bloody death on the cross. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Notice the focus on the death of Christ here. This passage focuses more on the death of Christ than, than any other passage in the New Testament. Again and again and again, we are led to the cross. We're led to the death of Christ, a sacrificial giving of the Son of God for His enemies. It not only tells us the, the fact or the reality of his death but the reasons for his death there are five that are given in this passage first of all to demonstrate God's love if we go back to verse 5 how we ended uh, last week now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us now having brought up the love of God in this next passage Paul is describing just how great how big <laughs> the love of God is it, 
He says it's, it's demonstrated, it's poured out, I mean, given, given in uh, effusion in verse 5, poured out to overflowing. But now we see just how great it is. It's one thing to say God loves you a lot, but look at verse 6 through 11. Here is how God loved you. For, and that word for connects us back to verse 5, explanatory gar, for you Greek students, goes back. For, when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for us. How did God love us? When we were totally without any strength, helpless, God, Christ, died for us, the ungodly. And verse 8, of course, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. How, how does God show us his love? Now, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Natural human love is almost always based on the attractiveness of the object of our love. And, and we are inclined to love people who love us. It just kind of works that way. If someone is really nice toward us and loves us, then we are probably going to love them in return. And we think that's how it works. In fact, we get to thinking maybe that's how God loves. If we do loving things towards God, He's going to love us more. Um, if we do certain works, then He's going to love us more. That somehow His love for us is dependent on how we act toward Him. That somehow we can deserve or earn more of that love. Jesus pointed out in Matthew 5 that even the tax collectors love those who love them listen to what theologian Charles Hodge said about this passage if God loved us because we loved him he would love us only so long as we loved him and on that condition and then our salvation would depend on the constancy of our treacherous hearts but since God loved us as sinners since Christ died for us as ungodly, our salvation depends not on our loveliness, but on the constancy of the love of God. Our hope is not in how good we are going to be or do, but in how gracious and loving our God is. He died to demonstrate his love for us. Notice in verse 8 that God loves and Christ dies. God, the Father, to demonstrate how much He loves, Christ, the Son, dies. Secondly, the second reason is to help the helpless. As we saw in, in verse 6, for when we were still without strength, we, when we were totally helpless, there was nothing we could do to save ourselves. He helps the helpless. For those who are poor in spirit, 
who, who realize that they are bankrupt spiritually. They have nothing to offer. Christ helps those. Elton Trueblood wrote, It is the opening of the door that counts. And the sober truth is that we need the help of someone else to get the door open. Seldom do we carry the keys to our own prisons. That when we're in this shackle of sin, behind the bars of uh, being in sin and under the Satan of this world, the God of this world, we don't have the keys to release ourselves. We depend upon Christ. We are helpless in that situation. But he came to help the helpless. Third, he came to be our substitute. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died who pair for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, who pair, as our representative in our place for us. If, let's say you owed a, a mortgage on your home and uh, you are... You lose your job, you can't make your payment, you don't know how you're going to exist. And someone goes into the, the bank or the mortgage company and says, I want to pay this for you. They, and they pay the full amount of your mortgage, 200000 whatever it is. Pay the whole thing for you. That's doing it in your place for you so that you no longer owe that debt. This is what Christ did on the cross when he died for the ungodly in verse 6. Verse 8, when God died for us, he paid the price of sin in our place for us as our representative so that we no longer owe the debt. The debt has been paid in full, is gone. He died to demonstrate God's love, to help the helpless, to be our substitute. Verse uh, 9, he died to justify us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. Now, compare that, verse 9, having been justified by his blood, verse 5. Uh, chapter 5 verse 1 therefore having been justified by faith so in one place we have faith and the other we have by his blood and the truth is that both are needed it is by his blood that, that is the grounds the basis of our salvation he died for us it is by faith that's how we exercise it it's through belief in the cross and in Christ who he is that we access it so it's justified by his blood and justified by faith in his blood, in, what, in his death, what he has done. And then number five, he died for the enemy to reconcile us to God. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God through the death of his son so we have been reconciled to God by his death we were his enemies not at peace with him but his enemies and he has reconciled us to God Jesus dying for the enemy and finally what happens through this and this is interlaced in the passage is that God changes enemies into allies forever we who were in the kingdom of darkness have not only been brought into the kingdom of light but we are secure in the kingdom of light forever see how he states this in several ways first of all there's the logical application in verse 10 for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life this of course is arguing from, from the greater to the lesser that is think about this if when you were God's enemy he died for you if when you were God's enemy, God sent his son to die for you, how much more, now that you've been reconciled to him and that he is at peace with you, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, now that we are at peace, how much more shall we be saved by his life? So that's the, the logical application. There's also the future application verse 9 much more than having now been justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through him not only are we now reconciled but based upon that reconciliation we know that what the future holds we shall be saved future indicative we, we will be saved Th this is God's guarantee you're going to be saved in him. He reconciled you. He who began the good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. He is not going to leave you or forsake you. He is going to cause you to persevere to the end. All who belong to him. He may chastise us along the way, and he does by his grace, but he will bring us safe to the end. Verse 10 also echoes that same thing. Well, the end of verse 9 says, We shall be saved from wrath through him. And the end of verse 10 says, Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Perhaps meaning by his life now that, that uh, as Hebrews 7 says, that he is now interceding for us as our great high priest in heaven, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 but there's also the present application verse 11 <clears throat> and another not only that and not only that but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received 
the reconciliation. We're, we're not waiting for this to happen sometime in the future. One of these days, I'm going to be secure in Christ. No, it's now. If you are in Christ today, if you believe that He is your Savior and your Lord, you are secure in Him. You have now received the reconciliation. You have peace with God. And as a result of that, now here's what we do. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we rejoice about a lot of things. Rejoice about the birth of a child. Rejoice about a, a wedding. We rejoice about our team winning. Uh, we rejoice about getting a raise. We rejoice about a lot of things which are temporal. And it's, it's fine. God wants us to rejoice in such things and rejoice with those who rejoice, right? But we rejoice in God and in the things that bring us closer to God. I did a, a search uh, this last week on wherever the Bible says rejoice uh, in something. For uh, the majority of the time, it's rejoicing in God himself. Then it's the second most is rejoicing in salvation. And then the third category is rejoicing in the things that bring us closer to God. But by far, most often is rejoice in God himself. Not, not just rejoicing in the things God gives us, the goodies that we get, the, the fruit of the Spirit, or, or how God might bless us in a certain way, but rejoicing in, in God himself. Not looking at the gifts, but looking at the giver. Rejoicing in him. Because we have reconciliation with him we can rejoice in God you see when a when a person encounters God there are only one of two possible responses to that either they seek escape or they seek his face they, they seek to flee from his presence or to enter into his presence to run away from him or to run to his arms. To recoil from him or to rejoice in him. What Paul is saying here is that by God's grace, by Christ's death, by the moving of the Holy Spirit, we can rejoice in God because we have now received the reconciliation. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. We have much to rejoice in God for. I want to close today with um, a true story, something that happened in Ireland years ago. It was late in the afternoon and cold. The windows of the bus were fogged by the hot breath of the weary miners. Half the fathers in the village worked in the coal mine outside the small Irish village and made their way home each day on the company bus to a waiting family and a hot meal. 
The roads were slick with ice. It was one of those times you dare not put on the brakes or turn sharply for danger of skidding off the road. There was a solid rock wall on the right and a sheer cliff on the left to the quarry below. The driver carefully guided his precious cargo down the narrow incline. Suddenly, as they approached the village, through the dim light, the men could see the form of a small boy sitting in the street, playing in the snow. His back turned to the fast-approaching bus. An eerie hush descended on the bus as the men realized the impact of the situation. In just a few split seconds, the driver was forced to make a decision no man ever wants to make. To attempt to stop suddenly or swerve meant certain death for half the fathers and husbands in the small village. To continue on meant certain death to the oblivious boy ahead. In those few seconds, he must decide, the boy or the men. With tears in his eyes, the bus driver made his decision. The men awaited the impact. The driver was the first one out of the bus and ran back to pick up the lifeless body of his own son. How can anyone imagine the anguish of that father's heart? But had he known it was his own son, had those men on the bus been his enemies, had he known that, would he have done the same thing? I don't know. But that's what God the Father did. Knowing that we were his enemies, he purposely sent his son to die on the cross for us. A much worse tragedy than this father and son is our heavenly father and the son of God. And by that we have been reconciled forever let's pray oh Lord God what magnitude of love you have for us beyond all our knowing that you holy God would love us ungodly sinners to that degree we thank and praise you Lord that you that you did and that you do that we have now received this reconciliation we have been justified by the blood of your son and justified by faith may we rejoice in you and may our hearts draw ever closer to you for your great gift and Lord I pray for anyone here that, that might not know you that, that they would understand that this death of your son was for them as well. And all who put their trust, their faith in him have everlasting life. In Jesus' name.